The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. If you're looking to grow your career in solar tech, then look no further than Aurora. Aurora Solar is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. And Aurora is hiring across multiple roles, including customer success, marketing, sales operations, and more. See open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Every few seconds, a new residential HVAC system or water heater is installed around America. Most of them are designed to burn oil and gas, locking in 15 to 20 more years of carbon pollution. So how do we electrify 100% of that new equipment rapidly? This week, unlocking residential electrification. We've got a real live house whisperer with us to talk through it. Plus, climate risk is weighing on home buyers. What are the consequences for the market? Catherine Hamilton is my regular co-host. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Hey, Catherine. Hey, happy to be here. Hope you're well, too. I don't know if a lot of our listeners knew this, but you formally did energy assessments in homes for people for, for a utility back in back in the day? Well, I was a certified energy manager um, because I had to design an energy audit program for the federal government. And I knew I needed to like kind of kind of brandish my chops and really show that I was accredited. So I got my CEM and used that to develop the program. <laughs> you have a wide ranging career. You never Cease to amaze me. Completely now random. You are, <laughs> now you are the chair of 38 North Solutions. You're our policy expert. And uh, we bring up your bona fides because we have another expert on the energy efficient, the high performing energy home. And that is Nate Adams. He has been a guest on the show before, but it's been a while since we've talked to him. Nate, how are you? I'm doing great, Stephen. You are there in Louisiana with us, huh? Oddly enough, yeah. So uh, I am at the home of one of the HVAC 2.0 contractors. This is Dustin Cole's house of Cole Air. And he was kind enough to host me so that I had internet for doing this. If you follow Nate on social media, you know that he's often driving around the country with his family in a van and a camper sporting a shirt that says HVAC 2.0 or wearing an Electrify Everything hoodie. Um, So they also call you the house whisperer, Nate. Remind us, how did you get that name? Uh, well, that one's kind of embarrassing. I kind of gave it to myself when <laughs> I saw somebody else have it on their card, and I thought that was cool. Um, but uh, um, it comes from, because it, when you look at the work that we do from the outside, it seems like I'm a house whisperer, like we do something magical. But really, all we do is take physics and apply it well to a house. So I've known you for eight years, I think. We first got connected when you were trying to raise awareness about how energy efficiency programs are broken on the state level. And you've since evolved into a book author and a niche YouTube celebrity on home performance. Tell me about what your guiding philosophy is to like make homes better, um, you know, to get an efficiency and climate benefit. Like what's your approach? So we, we believe that everyone should have the opportunity to have a healthy and comfortable place to live and preferably have that house run on renewable energy. And so pulling that off usually requires a combination of insulation, air sealing, and HVAC, so heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Um, And figuring out what each house needs as individual 
So there needs to be a very specific process for doing that, not unlike, say, a nurse coming in and helping uh, a sick patient. So we're going to talk about how we scale that approach. So here's how this episode is going to go. We're going to spend the first part of the show talking about home electrification, what is it, the benefit, the opportunity, and most importantly, the market constraints. We're going to focus mostly on heat pumps, which are the pillar of the electrify everything strategy in the home. There is extremely high demand for this topic. So I put out a call on Twitter and we got dozens of questions from listeners. We may pick a few of those questions to address during the conversation. Um, And then later, we're going to talk a bit more about policy and how we put the framework in place to make this actually scale. So let's begin with the most important question, why electrification? Catherine, remind us why running all the systems in our homes with electricity is an important climate strategy. Yeah, so put this in perspective. If the U.S. electricity system were powered by zero carbon generation, that would reduce total U.S. emissions 30%. But if you then electrified buildings, transportation, even half of industry, that would boost reductions by more than 70%. It is a huge opportunity for emissions reduction. That's why everybody is focusing on electrification right now, because there is a huge benefit. We're cleaning up the grid really fast. And if you start to electrify everything, you can extend those benefits of a cleaner grid to a lot more systems in the home. And what about grid resiliency? There's actually a pretty important component here, Catherine, to electrifying homes. And that is uh, you could potentially reduce winter peaks. And we're talking about cold weather peaks in the wake of Texas. Um, Tell us about like what people are finding in terms of grid resiliency. Yeah, so ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, this week is releasing a report called Utilities Can Lessen Winter Power Outage Risk by Investing in Home Efficiency. So if you remember, in Texas, part of the problem was demand on a system that was not used to a winter peak. We are moving more to winter peaks. Even Mississippi Power, as we're going through their IRP process, is saying they have a winter peak now. So ACEEE found that energy efficiency measures and heat pumps in particular would really help lower the system demand and thus prevent system-wide outages or the need to cut back on power during those periods of high demand, especially in the winter. So Nate, let's address the basics here. When we talk about residential electrification, What do we mean? What are the systems we would commonly convert in a home? So there's four usual systems. You have your heating and cooling, which typically looks like an air conditioner and a furnace in northern climates, like where I'm from. Uh, You have your water heater. There is the stove. And then typically the dryer. And occasionally you'll have a fireplace or something like that. What is the hardest but most impactful piece to convert? That would be the heating and cooling system in a house which is really complicated because the other three are not unlike changing your clothes. You know, if you have a water heater, you pull one water heater out, you put another water heater in, you're done. It doesn't usually affect anything else. Same thing with a stove or a dryer. It's a direct replacement. The problem with the heating and cooling system is that it's usually connected to a duct system and uh, then it's connected to the house, which is its own animal besides. So it's like changing out a system in a system of systems, or an easier way to look at it is it's like doing an organ transplant. So you can do it poorly, and the patient will live, but they'll be a bit of a zombie. Catherine, why heat pumps? 
Yeah, so one stat is that the UK Heat Pump Association estimates that air source heat pumps can reduce heating emissions by more than 60% versus oil and natural gas boilers today. Um, and further technology improvements by 2050 could lead to 90% emission reductions. And that's huge. And that's on top of the savings that they provide, just dollar savings to customers. I mean, the, the biggest piece is if you are in a northern climate, as far as energy use goes for a house, heating and cooling is by far your largest piece. It's usually about half, sometimes 60%. So let's talk about how heat pumps work. We're talking about ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps. Air source heat pumps are getting better and cheaper and they're becoming more popular. Um, Let's talk about how the technology works. I want to throw a little aside to Kevin Kircher on Twitter, who gave this description of how heat pumps work. And he said, a heat pump is like a little gnome with a bucket running in circles. He runs outside, rings a little heat from the cold air, runs inside, dumps out the heat and repeats. He eats electricity to keep up his strength. I just, I love that. So tell us more about how air source heat pumps work and why are we focusing more on them today? It's funny, I had that exact tweet sitting up on my screen to read it. You stole my thunder. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was such a good description. Great job, Kevin. Um, so heat pumps are really important because they take heat from one place and move it to another. Um, and so the, the easiest way to think about a heat pump working is to think of your refrigerator. So your refrigerator right now, it's cold in there, and then it's even colder in your freezer but there's heat coming out of the back of the fridge, meaning that it's taking heat out of the the cold air in the fridge and freezer. That's what a heat pump can do as well. So it seems strange that when it's zero degrees outside, you can pull heat from the zero degree air and pump that into a house and keep the house at 70. But you can through the refrigeration cycle, and I'm not gonna go into what that looks like, but I, I do have to say, understanding how heat pumps work it's the closest thing to magic that I know of in real life. And is that magic getting better? It, drastically. Um, and it's, it's funny. It's slowly, slowly, all of a sudden, just like most things. Mini split heat pumps, which is kind of similar to what you might see in a hotel room that has a unit on the wall. Uh, inside, but they're they're smaller. But a mini split is a, a little indoor unit and then a little outdoor unit. And those are super common in Asia and Europe. Uh, and they were invented 40 or 45 years ago. But they have a unique technology in them called the inverter, which uh, lets them run at a number of different speeds. So they can run typically from 20 or 25% of full capacity all the way up to 100%. And in fact, when it gets really cold, they can run at as much as 200% uh, uh, power consumption, which lets them hold their output. So if it's rated for a three-ton heat pump, which is a really standard size, it can still put out three tons at zero degrees or nearly so. And that's very different from the previous generations and that the inverter technology has only recently, in about the last 10 years, become common in central heat pumps for American homes. And it's, it's getting to be quite well known and quite common. 
So when I was at a utility, I was designing grids, but I was also doing a lot of energy efficiency work. And one of the things we did, and this was in the late 80s, we were supposed to go and sell heat pumps as part of a dual fuel system. So for folks who had, say, gas furnaces, or even sometimes with electric baseboard furnaces, we would say, we want you to install, instead of an air conditioning, we want you to install a heat pump. And that would be more efficient in both the summer and winter that would work for you because it does the AC in the summer, right? But a lot of people complained that the air that comes out, as you said, it's warmer than the air on the outside of the house, but it still feels cool. So how has that technology changed so that heat pumps are actually seen as more comfortable? That's a really good question and a super important one that the inverter has also helped out with quite a bit. So the air temperature output with the newer heat pumps is generally higher. And even if it doesn't happen to be higher, generally these units are running at much lower speed. So rather than blasting air and, you know, watching the curtains flutter when the units turn on, it's just barely trickling out. So it's matching what that house needs at any given moment in time. And the the load matching is critical. Um, In fact, uh, I have something in my book called the six functions of HVAC. And that is the number one thing is load matching. Because if you can do that, it makes a house comfortable. Um, In fact, there's there's an easy analogy for it. Imagine you want to take a shower and you have 10 gallons of hot water. You have the option of either having a 10-gallon bucket dumped over your head all at once, like it's Gatorade, or you can take a five-minute shower. Which one do you want? I'm a pretty extreme guy, so just give me the bucket. <laughs> no, I, 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 I love that analogy. That's so helpful to, to understand how they work. Um, of course, you're going to pick the five-minute shower. Who wouldn't? Yeah, So, and that's what right-sized variable speed HVAC can do is it's gradually putting out a little bit of heat or a little bit of cool like a shower rather than being a slam on, slam off like a bucket of water. Uh, So once consumers begin to understand how that works, they tend to opt for higher end equipment. And then you get these really nice comfort benefits. But uh, to the clean energy side, uh, because they're generally running at a lower speed, They're much gentler on the grid. You're not going to get a lot of spikes. And when they turn on, they tend to soft start. So rather than spiking really high when they first turn on, they turn on at low speed and then ramp up to full and then ramp back down again. So they're they're much nicer for the grid as well. Yeah, that gets back to the point at the beginning of the episode about smoothing out winter peaks. So we've established why electrification matters why replacing HVAC systems with heat pumps is one of the most high value things we can do in a home. Let's talk about why this is so difficult. Now, your newest project, your community, your workshops that you're doing are called HVAC 2.0. How are you thinking about what it's going to take to get to all you know new HVAC equipment in homes to heat pumps going forward. I mean, any new system that goes into a house should be a heat pump if we really want to get the climate benefit. It's a tall order, but it's part of what you're thinking about with this HVAC 2.0 concept. So just identify the problem for us and what you're trying to solve. 
So the problem is basically every single stakeholder is getting in the way of that happening. <laughs> so um, be it uh, current utility programs that lean towards furnaces and gas because that was the thing to do until just recently. I mean, electrification is a pretty new push. Um, to efficiency programs oftentimes not being aimed at that sort of thing. Like for instance, NYSERDA in their low income program will pay for half of a furnace. But if it's a hybrid, they won't pay anything. If you go heat pump only, they have large rebates. It's about $1,000 per ton, which is also not the right way to do it. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, so the, the programs are in the way. The, uh, the OEMs, they would like to do it. But because a heat pump is a little bit more expensive than an air conditioner, and to be clear, almost every air conditioner model out there has a heat pump version, and it's the same piece of equipment. It just has a few extra parts so it can go backwards, and it can heat as well as cool. So if, every, if you hear the term heat pump, that doesn't mean you're losing your air conditioning. It's meaning that you get heating too, to, in addition to. Then you get to contractors who go back to what Catherine was talking about, where they got complaints from customers were like, it's cold. I don't like it when my heat pump runs. And so they got burned years ago, not unlike 1980s diesels, and they have no interest whatsoever in selling heat pumps anymore, particularly up north. And then you have consumers who had that experience as well and are also saying, no, I have no interest in a heat pump. Not understanding that the new generation that is out is drastically different from what they once were. So that ultimately means contractors have very little incentive to offer these to consumers. Consumers often have a very poor or a very limited experience, and this is just a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, we're going to get into this deeper in the policy section, but like, how do we even begin to tackle that? Where does it start? Does it start with contractors? Does it start with manufacturers? Does it start with, con you know, getting consumers excited about them and asking for them? How do you even address that if it's such a deep and multi-pronged problem? So I chuckle. The answer is, where do you start? And the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> you need to do all of them simultaneously, uh, which is what we've ended up coming to the conclusion of with HVAC 2.0. And I mean, the, the problem, I don't know if you guys have heard the term wicked problem. I'm from New England, so we use the word wicked all the time. Well, I realize that, but this is its own term as well. So, and I, I love using the word wicked. It's a great word, but a, a wicked problem is one that is so complex and multifaceted that you don't know that you solved it until you do. I don't think I've ever found any answer to anything then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the good news is in what we're building, I think we've actually solved that wicked problem. One of the reasons it is so difficult to wrap your head around HVAC 2.0 is because it does so many things simultaneously. So it is contractor education. It is homeowner education. It is a sales process. It is a business model. It is an efficiency program. Um, like it's doing all of these things simultaneously to be able to solve this problem, which is really hard. Um, and the tricky part of that is while we're beginning to move the industry, and I think we truly can move the industry, the real challenge that we have is getting to where we are installing anytime there's an air conditioner going in, that, that piece of equipment is a heat pump. And until that happens where every single uh, air conditioner is a heat pump, 
we don't begin the clock of replacing all of the other units out there. So this is, it's a really, really hard problem. And with, with what we're doing alone, getting to 100% by 2030 is, it's possible, but it's, it's kind of like dumb and dumber possible. If you remember that scene when uh, it's like, so what do you think the odds are between a girl like you and a guy like me? And she says, oh, about one in a million. And he gets excited and so says, you're, you're telling me there's, there's a, chance. a chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting there by 2030 is not going to be easy. It's possible. I can see a path. Uh, but because we have to change the minds of literally every stakeholder in the process, this is not going to be a quick turn. Yeah. And there are tens of millions of gas furnaces, oil boilers, coal stoves out there in the world to switch out. And so I'm really interested in, you know, you're talking about retrofitting. When something breaks, a lot of times people are not able to go out and shop at leisure for to replace. They just like call their local store and say, hey, bring me whatever you've got on your truck, right? Because I need heat or I need cooling right away. So I feel like there's that issue. And then there's, so that's the issue of a retrofit. But there's also the issue of like, as we think about moving forward with new construction, we also have to build all of that in from the front, right? That's actually a really good point because the, I, I I don't know what the stat is, Nate, but like it's it's I think the vast majority of like water heater installs and HVAC installs are emergency installs. Is that correct? So like if you're trying to get new equipment in an emergency, you're not really thinking about a heat pump most likely. No, your hair is on fire and you're trying to find something to put it out with. Um, I mean, that's it, no one makes logical decisions when they're highly emotional. And if it's 20 degrees out and your heat is out, you are not making logical decisions. So it's whoever shows up first with whatever piece of equipment they can get their hands on, that's what you get. And that piece of equipment, like, I mean, if it was a kid, by the time it gets replaced, it would get its driver's license um, or maybe be graduating high school. Uh, so this is a long-term decision that is made on an emergency basis. And the stat's pretty high. It's, it's, it's pushing 90% of residential HVAC replacements are on an emergency basis. I heard 87% from an industry meeting that I'm not really supposed to know about, but I do anyway. So wrapping up, let's bring all this information together into a practical use case. Let's take my example. I'm currently looking for a new house in a more rural community. We're looking at places that will need some kind of renovation and ideally a place with like old equipment that we can very easily swap out. The, we're looking out in Western Massachusetts and the Berkshires where the vast majority of uh, heating systems are oil-based. And so we would want to rip something out pretty quickly. We'd also eventually want to install solar, but we'd have to make a choice between the two, electrify the home or install solar first. So if we're thinking about the overall benefit, um, both in terms of comfort, but also the climate and environmental benefit, what do you think we should prioritize first? Um, how should a homeowner like me be thinking about this? So first off, I'll just say you're basically asking the HVAC guy if you should buy HVAC first. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Which is funny because I never thought of myself as an HVAC guy, but now I get called that. Um, so in general, I still would lean towards replacing the systems in the house. Because when it comes to clean energy, you generally have an option where at least you can buy RECs. 
So you can buy clean energy for basically the same price today without making any changes. So if you're looking for the best carbon bang, um, I don't think you want to buy offsets for the gas that your furnace is burning or the oil that your furnace is burning because that's not really the best way to do it. It would be better to change the systems in your house as needed and get that out of the way before you do solar. Yeah, we have we have a place in the Shenandoah that has a heat pump uh, that we use for heating and cooling, and uh, and then we also have the wood stove. So we've, we've kind of blown away the emissions piece. Well, the wood stove's carbon neutral, even if it puts a lot of particulates out. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Collective solar installations in the U.S. are expected to top 100 gigawatts this year. That's enough to power almost 20 million homes. And even more impressively, that number is going to explode. It will quadruple in the next 10 years. So if you want to be a part of that growth and you want to join a winning team in technology that is booming alongside the renewable energy revolution, head over to Aurora Solar's career page and apply to one of the dozens of fully remote roles they have open across the company, including customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. You'll be joining an organization that was voted a best place to work in 2021 while building the digital platform that powers the future of the solar industry. Learn more at aurorasolar.com energygang. Okay, so let's spend the next part of the show talking about how to solve these problems and enable electrification. If we do need to replace 100% of new residential HVAC systems with heat pumps by 2030, how are we going to kickstart it? Nate, this will give you an opportunity to dig into some of the specific policy proposals you're developing. Catherine, first to you, this is what you do. You you know the policy <laughs> landscape. So what, what policies exist out there right now to push the market? And more importantly, what doesn't exist? Yeah, so there are a lot of state policies. Um, I focused a little bit more on the federal side. I spoke with Lowell Unger from ACEEE, and I also spoke with Andrew Delasky from the Appliance Standards Awareness Project, and just talked about like what's out there. How can you approach this? And of course, one thing is to do whole home retrofits and to get some assistance on those. Um, and in the course of a whole home retrofit, you know that it would include weatherization. Um, you could do electrification there and. And uh, try to make sure that you're hitting, you know, the affordability affordability metrics that you need to. And then the other piece would be to directly incentivize either customers or manufacturers, because of course you kind of want to get upstream too to incentivize that manufacturers are producing the right equipment to do this. So those were kind of the two approaches. And Andrew Delasky was really focusing on the fact that the future is really going to be um, electrification with super efficient and also grid flexible heat pumps so that heat pumps will do everything that Nate says that they'll do and more. The magic will really come in. Nate, a lot of policies have tended to focus on, on the federal level, appliance standards, and then on the state level, energy efficiency and weatherization programs. Why hasn't electrification really fit into the mix? I would say it's beginning to be considered more, but for the most part, this is, it's such a new thing, really. I mean, Catherine, how long ago was it that electrification really became a focus? Maybe two years ago? Why now? I mean, actually, that's like a really important question. Why why is it all of a sudden taking on such prominence? I would argue it's because it's becoming blindingly obvious that the grid is going to be clean one way or another. Um, the exact date that's going to happen and the exact percentage is unknown, but we're moving really fast because of economics. 
So uh, clean, clean electricity is now better than gas. Yeah, I reached out and I know Nate's worked with them also to Stephen Pantano from CLASP, which is sort of the international resource on efficiency standards and labeling. And they really do see this as electrification as the next opportunity, um, especially on the heating side for coordinated climate action. And I think I'm finding with the U.S. that electrification is not uh, universally politically viable. Um, because it involves having to uh, reduce an industry, namely the gas industry, <laughs> mostly, um, that's really got gained quite a foothold in heating and cooking and water heating. And so um, what ACEEE says is that you really focus more on the technology. So you can talk about heat pumps and you can talk about super high efficiency heat pumps and grid enabled and flexible heat pumps. And what you will end up with is electrification. Yeah. And that's exactly what made solar successful. I mean, these national and local solar installers have a good story to tell about cost savings, about being a little less dependent on the utility. And that is what has sold solar around this country in the residential space. So the same thing would probably be true for heat pumps. Do you agree with that, Nate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we find that what people are willing to spend money on, which at the end of the day is the most important piece. If people won't buy it, it's irrelevant. So most of our clients are trying to solve a room in their house that's five or 10 degrees warmer or colder, depending on the season. Or their kid has asthma, and it's because the house is too damp. Or they have allergies that follow them inside. So those are wonderful things to talk about. And they end up buying a heat pump. So as we say, uh, it's heat pump fight club. (laughs) You don't talk about heat pumps. (laughs) But you always offer a heat pump because it's the solution to so many different things. Even if it's part of a hybrid system, which is, I I don't love it because it's not a perfect solution, but it is a, a move that most people are willing to take. So a hybrid is a heat pump on top of a furnace. So most people are used to an air conditioner on top of a furnace. A heat pump is the same piece of equipment, but it can handle heating at uh, more moderate temperatures, say freezing and above. And then the furnace would take over below that. That is a much easier baby step for most clients to take um, because it's a belt and suspenders sort of thing. In fact, my partner, Ted, put a hybrid in his mom's house and they forgot to turn the furnace on. So he got a phone call when it was five degrees out in Rochester, New York, in his mom's 2,500 square foot house. Hey, uh, Teddy, um, it's five degrees out and the air coming out of the vents is cold. The house is still 70, so it's fine, but I thought the air would be warmer. And he thought to himself, holy crap, they didn't turn the furnace on. If the heat pump is heating the house at five degrees, why do we need the furnace? And that seriously was when the light went on for him that he then passed the torch on to me, and then we're now passing the torch on to contractors all around the country. And if you're sealing the homes and doing a better job of weatherization, you'll get even more bang for your buck in northern climates. Bingo. So this is a great story for consumers, but a couple of years ago when we had you on the show, I think Jigger was like, yeah, but how does this scale? You really have to get back to the manufacturer contractor model. And I know that this is something that you've been thinking deeply about in recent years. Um, what are some specific things that we can do to 
sell more heat pumps and get them to consumers as an offering. So the ideal thing is we stop making air conditioners and we only make heat pumps moving forward. Nate, I thought you were a conservative. So now you're telling people to stop making something? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I I understand. This is the pragmatic part of me. So uh, I, I thought a lot about how do we reduce the pushback that's going to come from all the parties. And the easiest way is to cover the cost difference between an air conditioner and a heat pump, which uh, whenever I talk to one of my HVAC buddies and they're at a supply house at that moment, I'm like, hey, will you take a look at what the heat pump version of that air conditioner is that you're looking at and tell me what the price difference is? It is always between two and $400. So to get a 40 to 90% reduction in gas usage, we're looking at several hundred dollars per house. And there's lots of programs that run in that, that kind of range. This is a pretty inexpensive way to have a lot of bang for your buck. So that's why part of me may not absolutely love that idea, but the fiscal conservative in me also says, well, for solving this problem, this is the cheapest way I can think of to do it that's unlikely to get pushback. So I talked to a couple of manufacturers about that idea, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good idea. Uh, do you know how often these mandates come out and we have to just take it on the chin out of our profit margins to make it happen? We would love to have a hand with that. That's, we'd be happy to stop making air conditioners. CLASP uh, also talked about giving people direct payments, like three or $4,000. They did this in China, and they went from heat pump sales of 39,000 units in 2015 to 680,000 units in 2017. And that seems like a good way, too, to incentivize the homeowners themselves. But I love this manufacturing approach because then the customer doesn't have to worry about it and the and isn't prey to the sales cycle of a salesperson who doesn't know anything but AC units, right? Yes. So two points on that. One is back to the the 85 to 90% of units that are replaced on emergency basis. If, if a heat pump is not in stock, or better yet, the only option that's on the floor, it's not getting installed. So if we can make it so that the entire supply chain is heat pumps, which again, it's, it's a few parts. Uh, it, it's a reversing valve that lets the refrigerant change direction, changes it from heating to cooling, and a defrost board that uh, helps keep the outdoor unit from turning into a literal block of ice. And there's a few other parts, but it's a, it's a few hundred dollars tops in parts to make that change. So if we can flip that, now when someone's furnace or air conditioner goes out, they're going to get a heat pump instead. And it's a pretty small amount of money, and the manufacturers are happy about it because they're not taking that several hundred dollars on the chin or having to pass it on directly to consumers. Contractors will need to have some training done, which the manufacturers can tackle through their supply houses. And then it also eliminates the the cry that I can just hear ringing in my head, which is they're trying to take our air conditioners away. Um, like, no, we're trying to get rid of your one-way air conditioners, and we're get, going to give you a two-way air conditioner. You're going to get more for the same amount. And I know you have actually been working on this policy proposal and working with some academics on crafting it. Tell us the update on how it's coming together. Absolutely. And first off, I want to say how funny it is that a non-policy guy, somebody who doesn't like policy, proposed policy, and then several policymakers came out there and said, hey, that's a good idea. We should make that real. Um, So yay, social media. 
Um, who would have thought some guy from Cleveland would propose something that could possibly turn into something? So anyway, CLASP and Harvard uh, and, and I are working together on that exact policy proposal we were mentioning of what happens if we pay the HVAC manufacturers to stop making air conditioners and only make heat pumps. And the numbers that are coming back on it early are looking quite good. Um, like it's substantial societal benefits, like five to one on the low side. So I'm really looking forward to having that finish going through peer review and and get out there. So hopefully it will be out there sometime early in May. Hey, some guy from Cleveland got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame there. So you're there. <laughs> So, so, Catherine, I was really surprised when we, we've broken down for a couple of weeks now the Biden infrastructure plan as more details have come around it. And as we've discussed in the last couple of years, the conversation around electrification has really exploded. And in that Biden infrastructure plan, there's a ton on vehicle electrification, but nothing on home or industrial electrification, as far as I can tell. And there's, you know, there's stuff on like building new efficient housing and weatherization, but nothing on electrification. Where could this fit in? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it can fit because there is a lot on efficiency interwoven everywhere. And so this is kind of part of that and part of decarbonization coupled with that. So I think in their, in their systems approach, you could definitely weave in electrification and that could be the outcome. So I think Congress is now considering some of those, you know, hope for homes or a lot of other programs that have been proposed um, and have passed in previous Congresses that would really help um, not only on providing incentives and assistance for people who need uh, upgrades on electric appliances, but also training for installers and folks who are out there selling this equipment. So I, I do think there's a path forward for this. Nate, I want to get your opinions on some of the gas bans we're seeing in cities around the country. Um, we are starting to see a lot of localities ban new gas connections in uh, new buildings and considering, you know, a much broader ban of gas connections. What do you think about this as a way to push electrification? So I'm of two minds. Um, the conservative side of me hates bans. Um, so, um, and really anyone hates being told that they can't do something. That's human nature. Uh, but on the new construction side, it makes a fair amount of sense because why are we going to put in 100-year infrastructure that's going to be abandoned in 20? That's a poor use of money. And so all of my conservative friends are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And all of a sudden, they don't care about new construction uh, not having gas run to it. Um, the, the problem would be if we go to a ban on existing homes – I mean, you have to keep in mind a huge chunk of my friends are conservative HVAC contractors. Um, I mean, it's there was a, a conference just recently, and they were discussing what guns they were going to pack with them to go to the shooting range. Um, you know, like th that's the the culture here. So uh, we have to be very careful with the bans, um, and if we can avoid using that word, that's best for sure. Uh, and we'll see how it works through the system because in some cases it may not be great for consumers. Like I'm concerned about Massachusetts in particular because Massachusetts has about double the electricity cost of the rest of the country. You know, they're 20, 25 cents versus 10 or 13. And 
so if you move to electrification, it could be substantially more expensive on the operation side than running a furnace. So it's fine versus oil, but not versus gas. So all of these things come into the mixture. Um, it's just something to be very cautious with. Uh, or else you see what we've seen. Several states have banned bans. And so we want to avoid silly pushback. Um, there's a, a wonderful GIF that I use in presentations. It's a bender from Futurama, the, the robot who is always stealing stuff. And he comes up to this sign that says no boating or boating prohibited. And he pulls the sign down, folds it into a boat and sails away. <laughs> um, we have to be very, very careful not to activate that part of our human nature which is also why I was thinking about paying the manufacturers to stop making heat pumps and only make air conditioners, or sorry, stop making air conditioners and only make heat pumps because now their bender, you know, boating prohibited, uh, screw you, I won't do what you tell me, instinct is not coming up. And if that's the only thing that is available at supply houses, they'll fall in line. And the contractors may whine, but they'll figure it out too. It's not that much harder to install a heat pump than an air conditioner. It's generally, say, 10 to 30 minutes more work in comparison. So it's it's not like we're talking a substantial change. Let's move on to the third topic. This episode has been about making choices inside our homes. What about making choices about our homes? Uh, I am back this episode with some more data from Redfin. If you remember in a previous episode, I mentioned an analysis of the greater flooding risk of housing in black and brown communities that was undertaken by Redfin. And the real estate app this week released a survey of prospective home buyers asking them how they'd factor climate risk into their decisions. Among people who plan to move in the next year, half said extreme temperatures or intensifying natural disasters influenced their decision to relocate. And one third said that rising sea levels played a role. Um, I, as I said, I'm looking for a more rural home in this bananas housing market. And I can tell you that climate has been at the top of my mind. The systems inside a home have been in the top of my mind. And uh, the agent that we're working with says that like he's hearing more people who are making requests like we are in terms of location and swap out potential of equipment in, in a home is. Uh, Catherine, just let's talk about location and, and the findings from Redfin here. Do they surprise you? What, are they, what do you make of them? Yeah, 41 million Americans live in flood zones. That's unbelievable. So I thought it was interesting that like 80% of people said that increasing frequency or intensity of natural disasters in an area would make them hesitant to buy a home there. That's pretty big. And there was a difference between people who lived on the coasts and people who lived in the middle part of the country. The middle part of the country didn't, it didn't track quite the same way as it did on those that were actually in areas with rising tides. So I reached out to a friend of mine who does real estate and everything that the Redfin analysis talked about that you mentioned, she tracked with, and she is not a climate person at all. She said that it is absolutely top of mind that the siting of the house, that she said people look at backyards and see if they're at different levels and if maybe their backyard is lower, they will just walk away. There's not even an issue of like, how do we mitigate it? They won't buy near a stream or a creek. They not only look at the flood maps that are required to be provided, but they go and do additional research <laughs> to make sure that the flood maps are right. Um, 
they check and to, to see if it's a resource protection area, if there's any soil erosion. She said, when I asked her about, well, how about electricity and energy and backup generation? She said, no, so much of this is about water and the potential for water damage. And I think that's because, of course, this is the D.C. metro area. We've had a lot of hurricanes and flooding, and a lot of people have sustained water damage, and it is extremely expensive and devastating. And I think that's what's causing a lot of people to look very closely at their homes before they purchase them. Nate, you're sitting there in Louisiana and a flood zone. <laughs> How do you feel about these findings? So it's funny. I actually live in a flood zone in Cleveland because our house is on stilts 15 feet from the Cuyahoga River. So we definitely considered this and we keep going back and forth on whether we should bother with flood insurance or not. Um, but our house happens to be high enough that, well, it, it needs to come at least four inches into the house which means the water would need to be about four foot over the banks. And it's never been more than two. But might that change? So we definitely have a question mark in our mind over that. Um, but it is funny, like being from the Midwest, I'm just like, I don't know how much of a thing that is. But then I forget what it's like being in other parts of the country where you're much closer to water. Yeah, the the I mean, 41 million Americans living in flood zones. It's a pretty stunning number. And as we can see from the survey data, most people are worried about flooding risk. That's what's on the top of people's minds. But we know that the the FEMA flooding maps are hopelessly out of date. It's really difficult to get good information on what your risk looks like a decade out or a couple decades out. And um, who knows if the trend will last, but people are staying in their homes longer now through the pandemic. The average time that people are staying in their homes is a little bit longer. It's just over a decade. So if you're buying a home today and you're staying in over a decade and you're in an area on the edge of flood risk, it's very likely that that flood risk is going to become much more acute over the course of the next decade or decade and a half. Um, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Lisbeth Kaufman, who co-founded a company called Lucid Home, and she actually went through this process um, looking for a home and trying to assess the long-term climate risk, knowing that she was going to be in a home for a long period of time and faced this challenge, not being able to find up-to-date data on what those those risks might be. And so she put together this resource and um the, the company is called Lucid Home to help home buyers figure out what those risks might be and to find what they're calling climate havens in these places where risk is, is lower. Yeah, at Realtor.com, I've talked about this before, there is a denotion um, on every single place as to like what the percentage is of flood risk. And so they do try to track that on that website too. But what's interesting to me is, you know, there are there are properties along the coast, like on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, that are very fancy. And even along the Potomac River um, in the D.C. metro area, which are down like where Wa George Washington had Mount Vernon, there are all these really fancy properties. And their values can't possibly be going up. That is, those are people who are, you know, quite wealthy living in those homes. But there are also people who have inherited homes and lived in homes for generation after generation, not only um, along beaches, but also along rivers that are finding that it is just such a high risk. And it's it's almost like when you're in a community that's in transition from a coal community, say, that's been you know left behind and you have a home, but suddenly it's really not worth anything because nobody wants to live there anymore. You're kind of in that position. It's, it's really tough for people. 
this is where we can combine all the themes of this episode together. The Biden team is dumping a ton of money into building new affordable housing around the country, uh, trying to encourage localities to change zoning laws to encourage more housing and fix the the affordability crisis around the U.S. And, you know, one way to, to think about this holistically is where you site housing long term. You know, it should be in um, less risky areas. And uh, are there any ways that you can incentivize the electrification uh, or or renewable energy installation on those homes? So all the stuff we're talking about throughout these three different segments feed into the very real policies that are being considered right now by this administration. Um, so I feel like this this is a super interesting time to be thinking about you know, how this transition happens in, in the world of housing and real estate. Yeah, another thing that um, my friend said that tracks with the Redfin study was that she said that millennials and younger are much more attuned to this than people who are in the older age brackets, that they're just, they're much more attuned to climate issues and the risks associated with that. Uh, And she found that interesting, too. Okay, let's go to free electrons now to round out the show. Nate Adams, what is your free electron? So... I just found this wonderful open letter sent out by, uh, well, sent out and signed by a whole bunch of air quality researchers that I know. So I tend to have my toe dipped into a whole bunch of different places, and air quality is one of them because we affect it so much um, with HVAC. I mean, we we spend ninety percent of our lives indoors. And at least half of that time in our homes where we have direct control over the 3,000 gallons a day of air that we breathe. So this open letter just came out. There's a whole lot of, frankly, snake oil out there that's being sold, particularly to schools that are looking to reduce COVID risk. And now there's a whole bunch of federal money that is going towards that. Uh, So there's bipolar ionization, there's PCO, there's a whole bunch of different things. But all of these air quality researchers got together and basically said, these are not good. We shouldn't use them. They're not well tested. Uh, Or when I took my Building Performance Institute test, we basically took the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And a lot of these technologies, uh, it's well agreed upon by these researchers and myself that they don't pass the do no harm test. So they may hurt and we don't know that they will help. So therefore, that's not really the way that we would like to go. We would like to stick to the more traditional air quality measures of bringing in outdoor air, really good filtration to knock the garbage out of the air, including viruses. Um, If you run good filtration, it knocks viruses out of the air or humidity control. So all of these things can really help. Um, And I thought it was wonderful that all of these researchers got together and put out this very firm statement. And are they going to get this out to all the school districts? Well, I mean, it's out there publicly. So it's a question of whether the school districts will read it and take heed of it or fall victim to the very slick marketing material of these companies. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, this is totally different. It has nothing to do with electrification or homes. Um, I saw the story that Talon Energy, which was an uh, spun off of PPL, and it was it's very heavy on fossil fuels. This um, 
independent power producer, they've entered a joint venture with Pattern Energy, which develops renewables. And they're going to invest $2 billion over five years to develop two and a half gigawatts of renewables and storage. And the first project they're doing is a 100 megawatt solar farm adjacent to a coal plant in Pennsylvania. And I just think it's great. I love to see um, companies like this. And, you know, Talon has five coal units. It does have a bunch of gas units, and it is looking at fracking some more gas. So they, they need to be held accountable for that, too. But to see these fine solutions um, to using their real estate that's right now being used to to produce energy with fossil fuel to convert that to renewable energy. And uh, I was pretty excited about that. My Free Electron is an investigation from Bloomberg Green, which is another story about the problems with PACE financing. That's property-assessed clean energy, more common in the commercial market, but also has helped finance hundreds of thousands of energy efficiency and solar retrofits around the country. It allows you to basically finance the um, the retrofit as part of your property taxes, but is often a very high-interest loan Um is the primary lien on the property, so it doesn't allow you to like refinance your house. Um, Fannie and Freddie may have said that they are no longer going to finance mortgages uh, for homeowners that have taken PACE loans. So there are some problems with the program. Um, but some of the problems are a result of contractors who have basically manipulated the rules to try to get low-income homeowners to make these really expensive retrofits. They have no idea what the details of the contract that they're signing are. And then they do the work before the homeowner can cancel. And they're often saddled with um, extremely high bills and the inability to move or refinance their home. And it's a chronic problem uh, that you know has affected a lot of people who have since sued to try to get recourse in the courts. And I wonder, Nate, like, is this a contractor problem or is this a program design problem? Because you know the contractor world really well. And I'm just curious, like, is it the rules that are in place or is it just that like inevitably you're going to have some bad contractors no matter what you put in place? Because we've been talking about this for 10 years in when it comes to pace. And I'm like trying to figure out, like, what is what is it about this that is causing so many problems? Our view of it is it's a structural problem. Um, the the easiest example that I use for it is, say I go to the grocery store and I get out cash along with my groceries. What did I spend on groceries that month? If I don't remember how much cash I took out, I don't know. So it's putting this money into the wrong column. I don't think energy should go in with the taxes. And it also makes it so that it's not transparent how much that is. And it may take six months or a year for that bill to show up and for the homeowner to realize what they did. So to me, all I can hear in my mind is Jim Rockford in the Rockford files, uh, trying to stop some scam. Like the structure of pace to me is tailor made for scammers. So we need better transparency and a different structure to do this sort of thing. Because obviously, I would love to see more retrofits happen. I mean, we, we know how to do them. We know how to sell them. We know how to make them work. Um, we know how to teach others to do those. But you know that my partner and I have hated Pace and have screamed about it for years. Like, look, 
people are going to get taken advantage of. And now here's all the stuff coming out in the wash. This is not a good structure. So is it possible to fix it? Yeah, but should we? Probably not. Okay, well, I think that's going to wrap it up. I feel like I just ended on a really negative note. Nate, give me something positive to end the show with. We have contractors all over the country that are changing their minds to liking heat pumps and going out there and getting into arguments and fights and moving other people along. And that has happened just in the last two years. And it warms my heart just to think about that. And it's going to warm our houses. (laughs) Catherine, give me something positive to round out the show. Well, hey, I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine six weeks ago, and I'm fine. So (laughs) there we go. (laughs) I got my vaccination minutes before we recorded this episode, and I texted a friend. I said, I meant to say, hey, I got vaxxed, or hey, I'm going to get vaxxed. And instead, I texted, hey, I'm going to get waxed. (laughs) And he was like... (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Uh, I got to look good for the show. Nate Adams is the house whisperer and the co-founder of HVAC 2.0. Nate, thanks for being here. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how can people find out more about the, the trainings and the workshops that, you're, that you've got going on? So the easiest thing to do is to go take the Electrify Everything course, which is something that I set up uh, aimed basically at a policy wonk in California, because that is the majority of who's taking it thus far. So it's aimed at homeowner level, and it walks you through everything you need to know about how to electrify your house, what the different equipment looks like, and how to find a contractor to do it. Catherine Hamilton is my co-host and the chair of 38 North Solutions. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, this was so much fun. Thanks so much, Nate. Thanks to everyone for your questions for this episode. I know we didn't get to many of them. Um, Nate has done a really good job of answering many of them on Twitter already. So apologies if we didn't get to address them explicitly, but I hope we got through many of them in the conversation. If you have other questions you want to riff on, like what we talked about, please just hit us up on Twitter. You can find Nate there. You can find me and Catherine there. And Nate is really good at responding to people. I don't know how you do it, by the way. Um, If you want to suggest other show ideas, please also just reach out to us on Twitter or send us a direct message. We don't get to respond to everything, but we certainly read them. And thank you for being here. This is the Energy Gang weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. We'll catch you next week.